Thank you for joining us for this week's sermon podcast from the First United Methodist Church of Parable. Well, God, we do pray with grateful hearts this morning. It is a gray and rainy day, but the rain is a reminder of your providence and your care for us and all of creation. As the rain comes down, may we receive it as a sign of your spirit and goodness and love. God, we give thanks for the opportunity to gather today in fellowship and to lift our voices in song and worship, to greet one another, to make our gifts and our offerings, to share in discipleship and classes and lessons together around these sacred words of Scripture. Holy God, we already sense your spirit among us, and we pray that as the scriptures were read and now as I share a word that your spirit would continue to speak to us, speak through me, perhaps in spite of me, for the sake of these, your people. All these things we pray in the name of Jesus Christ, who was raised from the dead. And let us say together, Amen. Amen. Well, tonight we are expecting and hoping for a few hundred kiddos to join us here at the church for a time of fun and fellowship. Uh, we had a big crowd last year. Of course, we had better weather. Tonight may be a more of a challenge, but nonetheless, we're going to have a good time in the fellowship with our own church family and children, as well as some children from our community. I'm looking forward to seeing the children in their costumes. That's always a fun thing to see what they have in mind. Do they dress in something that's uh, ghoulish, a goblin, a vampire? That's always fun. Maybe something that's uh, from a storybook or from a, a thing that they enjoy. Uh, some costumes are more like uh, career aspirations, you know, things they want to be when they grow up. We'll see a little bit of all of those this evening. As I was thinking about Halloween this week, I was thinking about some of my own personal childhood costumes uh, I don't remember this one really well because I was so little. I've only seen pictures of it. Um, but when I was one or two, I, I was dressed up in a handmade dinosaur costume, bright green. I was so precious, y'all. Just cutest, cutest little thing. Uh, one I remember from when I was four or five or six was an astronaut costume. And, and I remember my mom worked on that one real hard. And, and it looked just like a real astronaut costume. And I was sort of into rockets and things of that nature. So really enjoyed that one. There may be some children tonight, you can see there a police officer, a, a Star Wars pilot, or an Air Force pilot. We may have some doctors or teachers or all sorts of characters with us this evening. It's fun to, to kind of dress up in an in a aspirational way, maybe kind of a what-do-you-want-to-be-when-you-grow-up sort of way. Some of our costumes are like that. I'm wondering, with you all in this room, all ages, do you remember some of your favorite uh, childhood costumes? Do you remember uh, what it's like to put on uh, some other clothes for a day and to pretend to be someone else? You know, that's kind of fun sometimes. In fact, I'm wondering this morning, like, if you could, you know, like a child, if you could bravely put on any costume you wanted, even you adults, if you could put on any costume you wanted, a job, a hobby, the sort of person you hope to be in 5 or 10 or 20 years, if you could dress up like that person, uh, who would that be? It's kind of the question I want us to wrestle with today. You saw the graphic there at the beginning. We're beginning a new uh, sermon series called uh, Shaped by Saints. And so that's inspired, of course, by All Saints Day uh, that begins uh, this season uh, on the first Sunday in November. I will talk more about what All Saints means next week, but uh, I really want to use these weeks both before today and these weeks afterwards um, to, to kind of frame what's going on when we think about the saints in our tradition, in the Methodist tradition, but other traditions like ours, and what we, what we mean by that. What do we mean when we remember those who came before us, and how does that shape our life of faith? 
And the way I want to do that over these next few weeks is through the lens of 1 Thessalonians. And so you heard 1 Thessalonians read just a moment ago by Susie, the first 10 verses. Um, 1 Thessalonians uh, tends to be a book that gets a little less attention in the New Testament. I'm not entirely sure why. It, it doesn't have some of the, the real heavy theological treatises in it that you might find in Romans or Ephesians or Galatians or even 1 2 Corinthians. And so it, it tends to get a little less attention. I don't know that I've ever preached on it, or at least I haven't preached on it very often, and so I'm excited to do so. The thing that's important about 1 Thessalonians, though, or that's unique about it, is that it's broadly agreed upon among New Testament scholars that 1 Thessalonians is the oldest book in the New Testament. Right? So when you're reading 1 Thessalonians, you're reading the oldest Christian literature that we still have. Right? Uh, most scholars think it was dated to about A.D. 50. Right? So if Jesus was put to death in 30, uh, 30 33, um, and so we're talking 16, 15, 18, 20 years after Jesus' uh, death and resurrection. So when you're reading 1 Thessalonians, you're reading like the very, the very first things we know about Christianity, about Christian community, about what was happening in the church. The most original content we can get, even before the Gospels were written down, is 1 Thessalonians. Right? So that makes it sort of interesting and fascinating to me to reach all the way back into our, our, our history and to sort of ask what's going on with the church back then and how does that relate to us now. Okay, remind you a little bit of the context um, before we dig into the actual words of the scripture. So Thessalonians, like the other New Testament epistles, is named after the city to which it was written, right? So Romans, Rome, uh, so on. Galatia is a region, but, but still it's a geography. So anyway, here's Thessalonica. Thessalonica is a city there with a the big red arrow pointing at it. That little C there is the Aegean Sea. And you can see all the way to the lower right is Jerusalem. Right? And so we're talking about Paul's missionary work beginning to work its way further and further and further to the west. Right? And so from Antioch to Derbe to Lystri, uh, all the way to Troas, and now we're getting close to, to Rome, to Greece. Thessalonica is a port city there on the Aegean Sea. And of course, being a port city, it's on uh, major trade routes between, between the east and the west, between uh, Rome and Jerusalem, between Asia and so on. And so it's a real key city uh, in its time and in its day. And it becomes an important city for the development of Christianity. Uh, what are some other things we know about Thessalonians? Well, we, we know that the city uh, goes back to maybe 500 B.C. It's an old, old, old city. It was renamed in the 300s to Thessalonica after the half-sister of Alexander the Great. That was her name. And so the city is a woman's name. It bears her name. Uh, we know that it was considered a, a Roman free city. That's important. So it's, it's under Roman control. Um, but they are still allowed to, to, to have some of their own personal freedoms. They're, it's not necessarily a Roman colony, and we'll talk about why that's important in the letter in just a moment. So Roman authorities are there, but there's still some of the organic kind of uh, culture of Thessalonica that's, that's still at work as well. We think by the time, again, scholars, by the time Paul is writing here after Jesus' death that the city may have been 70 or 80,000 people. Right, 70 or 80,000. So you can think about the size of Jonesboro, right? 70 or 80,000 people. It's on an important trade route. It's growing. It's under Roman control. And Paul has traveled there uh, and helped to begin a, a Christian community. What we know about Paul's ministry in Thessalonica is in Acts 17, 1 through 5. Now, we didn't read that today. It's only five verses. It doesn't give a lot of detail. Paul is on his second missionary journey. That's what's mapped out here in the red arrows. They stop in Thessalonica. They engage with some people in the Jewish synagogue as well as some others. They convert them. They invite them, challenge them to follow Jesus. They begin to do so. 
uh, but almost immediately there's cultural threats and persecution, and so Paul is kicked out of Thessalonica, and he continues his journey. Uh, We think he goes toward Athens after he leaves there. And so we know that Paul visited as well as some others who were with him, and we know that he's writing this letter after the fact. Right? And so we, we've been talking in confirmation about these New Testament books, their letters. We're reading the mail between Paul and an early Christian community. Uh, and we're hearing what was going on with the very first generations of Christians. And so today I, I'm going to unpack, I think, kind of three points that I want to draw out of the text. And then we'll do sort of a, a bigger picture sort of summary at the end. So the first thing I want to look at is just that verse 1, right? Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is 1-1. One, one. Now that sounds similar to the way Paul begins a lot of his letters. That's a common greeting, right? He begins with the authors and then to the audience. So there are a few observations that we can make just from this very first verse, this very first Christian letter. Notice how Paul authors it, right? It's him, Paul, but it's not just him. It's Silvanus and Timothy as well. Now, Silvanus, we think, as best we understand, is the same name Silas. Silvanus and Silas are the same person. It's just a name that's written in different ways in different places. So Silas, uh, he gets some attention in Acts as well. He's kind of a partner with Paul, an assistant. Um, He's sometimes called an apostle to the 70, those early converts to, to Jesus' ministry beyond the disciples. Of course, Paul, we know a lot about, he was a, uh, he was a, a Jewish leader who was um, uh, angry about the Christian movement and sought to persecute and destroy Christianity. Uh, he was blinded, and he had a radical encounter with Jesus. He lost his eyesight. Later, his eyesight was renewed, and, and he recommitted himself uh, to Jesus, and he became a, a Christian missionary and author and preacher. Of course, Paul kind of championed the gospel for Gentiles, not just for Jews. And then Timothy, we know quite a bit about Timothy. There are two books that bear Timothy's name in the New Testament. Uh, Timothy comes up in Acts quite a bit. Timothy's an important character because uh, he is a Gentile. He's a Greek. And so Paul and Silas are Jews. Timothy's a Greek. So he's an uncircumcised person who's joining the ministry of the Jews who are following Jesus. And so we sort of have a ragtag group here, right? Paul that used to persecute the church. Uh, Silas, who's considered one of the early apostles outside of the 12 disciples, and then Timothy, the young Greek convert, right? And so it's interesting that Paul sends this letter on behalf of all of them. It's just kind of a little nugget to us that Paul sees his ministry and the ministry of the early church not as an individual, right, but as a team. And while Paul gets lots of attention in the New Testament as an important leader, he's never doing the work alone. And in this case, he's doing it alongside Silvanus and Timothy or Silas and Timothy. The other little thing that's interesting here is this word church. Think about what we're talking about. A.D. 50, Jesus has been dead and resurrected for 15 or 20 years. Church, as we use it, this church, meaning this building or this congregation, there was no such thing as church at this time, right? The word that Paul is using there is ecclesia. Ecclesia, that's the word I gave you in the top line, the ecclesia. Ecclesia is a, is a Greek word that just means the gathering of people, right? So there could be ecclesias in government. There could be ecclesias for sports or social activities. There could be ecclesias for education. Ecclesia is not a Christian word, right? There are no Christian words at this time. Christianity is just beginning. So Paul says, we're writing this letter to the gathering of people in Thessalonians, in Thessalonica, Uh, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul kind of gives us a definition here of of what it means to be the church, right? It's a group of people who have gathered together in a particular place, united in God the Father 
and in our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have here in AD 50 a very early working definition of what's going to happen in the world. Paul's beginning his journey and he's beginning to to recognize and celebrate all these little ecclesias, these little gatherings of people. And people gather for lots of reasons, but these people are gathering because they are united in God the Father and His Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. That's what makes church different than all the other gatherings, right? Other gatherings are fine too. We participate in many gatherings, but when we come here, we do so because we're bound together in God the Father and in His Son, our Lord, Jesus Christ. So you can begin to see Paul kind of working out a mental map. There are all these ecclesias, all these little communities but we're bound together in God the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ, even today. So when you think about Thessalonians, I want you to think about these three men, right? These three men, St. Paul, uh, Silas, and Timothy, and the way in which they helped to shape the early church and the way in which they shaped the church even today. These are just three figures to keep in mind. All right, secondly, I want to draw your attention to verses 6 through 8. You've got it there on your bulletin if you want to highlight or circle a couple of these key words, but I want to make sure you, you leave with these in mind today. Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for in spite of the persecution you received, the word with joy inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, for the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only there, but in every place, for your faith in God has become known. So this is Paul's description of this first century church, right? And I really want to draw your attention to those two words that I've, that I've underlined for you. Paul, writing to these very early believers, says, you became imitators of us, meaning Paul and Silas and Timothy. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. Maybe Paul meant to have those in the opposite order, right? But we can appreciate what he meant. Think about the early church. There's no Bible as we know it today. There's no New Testament as we have it bound or in our phones or on our iPads. There's no creeds or or traditions of the church to teach them like we have them today. There's no hymnal or hymn book or praise songs like we have today. I mean, so many of the sources and resources that we have to shape our faith did not exist at this time. All they had was the stories of Jesus, which hadn't been written down, and they had the example of other believers. That was it. And so the way churches began were to tell the stories of Jesus, his ministry, his life, his death, his resurrection, and then to to share the stories of other communities of faith. That was the only way to to move the the gospel forward, was to tell and to witness to what other people had done and, and what Jesus had done. And so that's what Paul says about the church in Thessalonica. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. You imitated Jesus, first and foremost, And you imitated us who taught you the faith. And then notice the reversal in verse 7. You became imitators, and now you have become an example. An example to everyone in Macedonia and Achaia and even beyond, for they have heard of your faith in God. I want you to really wrestle with this with me. Like, this is how the church began, right? One generation imitated Jesus And then those disciples took the good news and stories of Jesus and they taught them to other people and and that new generation imitated the disciples and the apostles. And then that generation was was then an example to the generation that came after them and so on and so on. This is, we sometimes call it the transmission of the gospel. This is how the church took shape, right? The imitators became 
imitated the evangelist, became those who were evangelized, became the evangelist, right? It's sort of a, a chain reaction from one generation, from one community to another. This is how Paul describes the early church. You were imitators of the Lord and of us, and now you have become an example to others. You've got that image on the front of your bulletin there. I, I hope that helps to offer you a little bit of a visual. There's also this famous painting uh, that's been done many times over uh, that, that sort of reflects on where Jesus says in John, I am the vine and you are the branches. And so the painting famously has Jesus at the center and the branches being the disciples. But you can see here in, in Paul's view, like it's, it's I am the vine and you are the branches and more branches, and more branches, and more branches, and more branches, and so on. Or this painting that we're going to use for this sermon series. I, I love how Jesus is in the center. He's bright white. You can see him in the center, but, but you can see all the other people around him, the apostles, and the disciples, and the church leaders, and some are bigger, and some are smaller. You can imagine them stretching across history, and of course, there's one individual who's there praying, and all of those other individuals who came before are gathered around them. This is how Paul imagines the church, right? Imitators and examples from one generation to the next. Now, what is happening in Macedonia? What is happening in Thessalonica that is so good? Well, this is what Paul says they're doing. This is the reason they ought to be an example for others. You turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait, from his, wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath that is coming. So when Paul remembers and celebrates and gives thanks for the church in Thessalonica, this is the reason why, right? What have they done that's so good? Well, they've turned from idols. They're now worshiping the living and true God, and they're waiting on his son to return from heaven. When the uh, historians tell us about this, this world at this time, they, they help us to see that there were just a, gosh, just a, a Walmart store's worth of worshiping options, right? There were there were. Greek gods and Roman authorities and there were cults. There were all sorts of things happening in the spiritual worship life in the city of Thessalonica at this time. I brought you a few examples today. This is Dionysus on the left. You know, he's the famous Greek god of wine and of parties and of celebrations. He was very popular at this time, as you might imagine, right? This guy in the middle is Saparis. He was a sort of a blend between uh, Greek traditions and Egyptian traditions, and he was worshipped for his uh, protection, for his virility. He was a popular god at this time. On the far right, you can see a picture of a, of a, of a figure, a deity called Calabris, who they worshipped. Uh, this was someone who had lost their life in that community, and so he was a particularly powerful presence. Uh, you can see in the coin, he's holding up a hammer uh, in one hand, and he's holding a wine glass in the other. So that sort of gives you an idea of what he was about, right? Hard work, but also a sort of a good time. Uh, they tell us there in Thessalonica that he was particularly popular. Beyond these, these gods, these Greek gods, or these local traditions, there, of course, was the, the Roman imperial cult where you were encouraged to worship and celebrate the emperor. There were also Jewish synagogues. I mean, it's just, it's just hard to imagine the, the options for worship in first century Rome compared to, to our contemporary day. And Paul says the thing about the Thessalonians is they have put all of that aside. They have quit worshiping idols, and they have turned their lives to the living and true God. Now, I think these visuals are particularly important because the point that Paul is making is that Dionysus and Seropsis and Calabrus, these are dead, right? All that's left of them are, 
our stone images or memories and whatnot. This, this, this God is the one who raised Jesus from the dead. This is the living God. And so quit worshiping those small g gods, those dead deities, and turn your life to the living Lord who's at work in the world even now through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is the legacy of the church in Thessalonians that they put away their worship of idols and they focused on Jesus, the living God. When we think about this church in Thessalonica and its, and its legacy, we heard Paul say in that writing that despite the persecution they had received, that they were experiencing joy by the power of the Holy Spirit. Despite the persecution that they were living with, with joy and the, the power of the Holy Spirit, that kind of ends up being the legacy of this church and of this region across history. I, I bring you two more figures to remember and celebrate today. The one on the left is Demetrius. Demetrius is remembered in Thessalonica across its history as their sort of military saint, their martyr. He was a military leader born to a Christian family in the 200s. So this is a couple hundred years after Paul's writing. In the late 200s, the Roman persecution in that area began to be amped up with a focus on Christianity. And so Demetrius was a military leader, a, a faithful Christian, and so he found himself at odds with, with Roman soldiers and Roman authorities. Uh, he stood up to them, stood up for Jesus, stood up for the faith, and eventually lost his life. He's sort of remembered as a, a, a military martyr. He's, he's celebrated even in Thessalonica today as their sort of saint of protection, that he's still with them and guiding them in some sense. The one on the right is a lady named Anicia. She has a, a similar story. She was born into a Christian family in the 300s in Thessalonica. She took a vow of chastity and poverty, and she lived her life among the poor, praying and helping the poor. She's a remarkable person of faith. But again, as persecution of Christians ramped up, she found herself one day uh, captured by a Roman guard who, who took her to a pagan temple and um, did, did uh, unmentionable things to her, and, and she lost her life in that way. Now think about a little bit what Paul's writing in 50 AD, that despite persecution, you've received the word with joy and you've turned to the living God. And then we have these remarkable stories two and three hundred years later of people in Thessalonica, Thessalonians, who are still living proudly and, and with confidence, their faith in God despite persecution, even if it means their own lives. These sorts of stories can be... Uh, I don't know, a little bit odd to us, certainly graphic. They sound like they're from a, a different world. It's hard for us to imagine a Christianity that is so intense. A Christianity that, that expects so much of us and calls so much from us and perhaps it embarrasses us a little bit, right? I mean, we, we come from this tradition where people gave up their lives for the sake of the faith and gosh, all the comfort and resources we now have in the church. It's a very different world. When we think about our life, there's a, there's a tendency in the modern world we hear all the time, you know, be, be yourself, express yourself, know who you are, right? Just live into who you are. And then there's some good things to be said about that. You should have confidence in who you are and you should know who you are. But the tradition of the church and, and other traditions as well has really taught that it's not all about who you are. It's also about those who came before you. And one of the best ways to learn to be a, a virtuous person or a faithful person 
is to imitate those who came before. That's what's happening in the early church, in the church in Thessalonica, but in other churches as well. You are imitators of the Lord and of us. And so I'm wondering sort of today, some 2,000 years later, if maybe we've, we've lost touch with that, that part of our tradition a little bit. And, and I'm wondering today, like for you, I began with the question about the Halloween costume, but now I'll make it more directly spiritual. I wonder for you in your life, who it is that's ahead of you on the journey that you are imitating. Now, it could be someone in your family. It could be someone in this church. It could be someone that you acknowledge and you kind of want to live a life like them. It could be someone who's been deceased for many years across the tradition of the church. But there, there ought to be someone in front of you who's serving as sort of a guide who helps you to understand what a life of faith looks like and invites you to live into that sort of holiness. And then the other side of the, the coin is the other question, right? Whether you want to acknowledge it or not, you're already serving as an example for those who will come after you. Now that could be your children or your grandchildren. It could be the children here at the church. It could be children you're around in the community in other ways. But I want you to think much more broadly than that. There are people who are watching you for whom you are the example of the Christian faith. Right? In your community, in your workplace, in your home. You're already shaping the church of the future by the way you live. And so in this sermon series over the next few weeks and beginning today, I want you to think about your sort of place in that, that holy web of relationships. Who for me is a, someone I can imitate? Who for me is someone who is faithful and holy that I want to be like and I can learn to live a, a life like theirs? And what sort of example am I setting for those who come after me? Who is going to look at me one day and say, that's the sort of life I hope to live as well? I invite you to wrestle with those two questions. In the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, with gratitude and humility, we give thanks for those who came before us. Paul and Silas and Timothy, those earliest believers who set out on unimaginable journeys to bring the good news of the gospel to new communities. Surely, God, we are a product of their faithfulness and their hard work and their confidence in you. We give thanks for others like Demetrius and Anicia who stood up to persecution who continue to proclaim your good news even in the face of remarkable challenges. Surely there are others in our lives, God, who inspire us and who guide us even now that we might imitate as we seek to follow you. God, we accept this challenge, we accept this call to live into these holy relationships with one another, not only imitating those who came before, but setting an example for those who might come after. Guide us and give us courage, give us wisdom in all of these things. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening. You can find out more about First United Methodist Church by going to our website at www.fumcparagold.org. May God bless you this week.